Hey guys. <laughs> so, I admit this is probably the Zelda I've been most nervous to talk about. In a similar vein to why I was so hesitant to talk about Metal Gear Solid. Same basic concept here. This is a game that's been dissected for years and years and years. Lots of theory crafters, lots of, lots of people who like extrapolating and ruminating on games have come to this game and done so. I have seen dozens of theories about this game, and uh, I'm only going to be mentioning a couple of them that are not my own, of course. For example, Link is dead! Yeah. <laughs> you know, and there's also, of course, the all the people here hated the goddesses of the Triforce theory, which is the other one I wanted to mention. Uh, but before I get into that, though, a bit of a... Uh, bit of a... Confession, I think is the word I want to use here. Um, if we were to look at the various Zelda games and how often I've replayed them, this one would be tied for second to least replays. That's counting this time, although I am also assuming that I'm counting uh, each time I'm going through. Let me, let, me, let me rewind a little bit. The Zelda I've played the least is Skyward Sword. Once. And I don't even plan to replay it again, so it stays at my least played Zelda. Then, again, tied for second least played is Majora's, Phantom Hourglass, and Spirit Tracks. Uh, this also doesn't count Link Between Worlds or whatever because I haven't played that yet. I'm not mentioning this as a, oh, it's a statement of quality, by the way. For those of you who weren't born in, you know, the 80s or 90s or whatever, uh, you may think it's weird to have this perspective, but once upon a time it was really hard to get a hold of games. Like, you you could go to Toys R Us or the local used game store, and that was basically your options. There was no Amazon, Half.com or eBay hadn't really got started yet. So for a long time, getting a hold of a particular game was actually kind of a troublesome thing to do. And so I didn't pick up Majora's Mask when it came out. The, my first experience with Majora's Mask was actually at the uh, store I worked at. We had it up on a display uh, version. And it was like, oh my god, this moon is collapsing and it's falling. And I'm like, oh, I wonder what happens if I just sit here and let it happen. And, and while I went about my shift that night, uh, you know, the, the time ticked forward until finally the moon collided and destroyed the world. And I was just like, huh, that is actually a little bit surprising. So I went ahead and rented it, and, you know, it rented the store copy there, took it home, played it for a bit, and said, well, this is way too freaky for me, and returned it and didn't look at it again for years. Go ahead, judge, it's okay. But that was my initial reaction. That Those first you know, about hour or two of gameplay, I was just like, huh? Was pretty much my reaction. Um, it is worth noting that one of the other problems I had with it initially, which I no longer think this is true, especially upon reanalysis mode, um, is it felt more like a tale than a story. For those of you who have not heard me discuss the difference between those two, uh, so go see my brother's A Tale of Two Sons rumination, which came out earlier this year. Uh, I won't bore you with the reiteration here, but the point is I thought it was a tale, and I'm like, I don't like tales. I don't, that's not my thing. It never has been. I'm too linear, literal-minded of a person to enjoy a tale. So, eh. now it's not, again, as I've said, but, you know, my first time, you know, I was like, Ugh. so then I played it at a friend's house, uh, like I said, years later, and I was like, oh, this game's amazing, you know, now that I actually get a chance to play it, and so then I went to try and procure my own copy, and I failed, and I failed, and I failed, uh, it was not until the mid to late 2000s, I kid you not, I forget the exact year, but it was after 2005, that I finally got a hold of a GameCube copy of Ocarina Majora's 
uh, Zelda 1, Zelda 2, and the Wind Waker demo. Some of you have actually seen me stream this exact copy uh, live on camera. And that was the first time I actually finally managed to own Majora's Mask and play through it, the two times I've played through it since then. So that's why. It's nothing about the quality. It's just funny to me. <laughs> I had such a hard time getting a hold of this game. I'm sure at least some of you understand, maybe not with Majora, but with games in general. <clears throat> Anyways, so... Uh... So, a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look here. Uh, the original intent here was they actually wanted to go back and basically do, like, a third version of Ocarina to actually make this whole... Uh, to, to, to completely redo the dungeons and revamp them and redesign them and all that fun stuff. And uh, Aonuma, which I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, didn't want to do that. He started doing his own dungeons in his own time. And he was found out, and Miyamoto said, yeah, all right, I'll let you do that, but you got one year, which is pretty short for development terms. In fact, they actually had two years total to make this game. Now, that was possible because they already did the engine. I mean, for all intents and purposes, Majora is an expansion to Ocarina of Time in terms of design. It's, 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 you know, it's the same basic engine, so all they had to do was make new meshes, make new design, and basically make a completely new game out of an existing engine. Now, I know that I'd, I say that, but I'm trying to emphasize that that doesn't diminish their achievement. It does explain why they were able to do the game in such a relatively short period of time. Uh, this is one of those reasons why I've been in favor of expansions for a while, because we get games like Majora's Mask out of it. But anyways, um, they did touch up the graphics a little bit. Most of, the, most of the graphics were actually identical, and they fixed the control scheme just a little bit. It's a little more responsive, even in the original N64 version. Um, that being said, of course, the 3DS version is naturally the 3DS version of Ocarina touched up, and all the fun changes made to that. I guess this is a good time as any to talk about some of the other changes. See, Ocarina didn't really change much when it came to the 3DS version. Uh, this one did. Uh, several little things. I mean, there's actually a fairly large list. It's a couple pages long. I'm not going to bore you with all of them, like moving the bank around or changing the positioning of A or B. But the really big changes really are to the bosses. They basically added a weak point mechanic to all of the bosses, really. Uh, with the big Majora eye popping out of the boss, and you have to do this special little thing to defeat it. And, the, the, well, I mean, it's not that different until you get to Georg and frickin' Twin Mold. Oh, God. I, I just have to tell this story here so I don't forget it. So Georg just took me forever. It was like a, a 10 to 15 minute fight of just, oh, come on, because he couldn't hit me. But I was having, I was get, I was too cautious, and so I kept getting more and more reckless, trying to get those mines into his mouth until finally, oh god, there. Um, but the, <laughs> the the twin mold fight. So I had uh, I had been on a cycle. I was like at the middle of day one when I went into the uh, the stone tower, and I was at the night of day three by the time I reached the twin mold fight. And for those of you who've played the 3DS version, you know that the fight basically was elongated. Uh, whether for better or for worse, I'll discuss when we get there. But, well, I guess I can discuss it now. But the point is, they, they changed it so that there's like a whole second phase, which technically wasn't there anymore. You get the, you get the giant's mask off of the blue 
uh, mold. And then you grow huge. And then you have to beat the snot out of the red mold. And I mean beat the snot. It's got a bajillion health. And it's constantly knocking you down and stunning you and then knocking you down. And so you have to dodge everything and then hit him and then dodge and hit. It's a very stick and move. Um, and then you have to swing him around and smash him into the ground four times in order to actually defeat him. It takes forever. Um, I was on the night of the third day, as I, re I remind you. By the time I defeated Twin Mold, the timer had already shown up, saying, you know, you have six minutes or whatever left. And it was down to four and a half minutes, or four minutes and 38 seconds specifically, when Twin Mold died. And I had gotten all this great fairy pieces, so and I couldn't remember where the great fairy fountain was. So I get out of there with four minutes and some change to spare, and I'm like, oh, God, I'm running around trying to find the great fairy fountain. It's like, oh, here it is. Oh, God, finally, yes, quick, go, pause it in the bank, go! And I finally made it with, like, a minute and a half to spare before the, the moon hit. But the whole fight with Twinball, that like you know everything's red and shaking, and you know you hear, you hear the bells in the distance. I'm like, come on, come on! I just thought it was funny. Moving on, so they changed that. Um, I'm going to discuss uh, why I think that was a good and a bad change. The change to Georg, uh, they should have done a couple things different with it. The range at which he will pull in mines is a little too short, in my opinion. Uh, I, I feel like these changes didn't go through as much playtesting as they should have, because there's little details with the design of them that's wrong, like that, for example. Um, now, I'm not saying you should be able to pull a mine from across the room. Indeed, a mine wouldn't even survive that long. Uh, but the fact that you have to basically be within you know, about 30 feet of him and toss the mine and then tr uh, get him to do it, it's a little irritating. The strategy I ended up using for anybody curious uh, on my second fight of him because I had to kill him twice uh, in order to, in order to uh, do some of the side quests because I did 100% run this time through. Uh, what I did was I would find what like, as soon as he would stop, I would find one that's close enough to him, dash into it, and then immediately rush over to him, because if you're really close to him, he almost always does an inhale attack, at least if you get there quick enough. And then I'd just try to dodge the mine as it went into him. That worked pretty well. The Twin Mold fight, though, they, they missed up on that one. See, the second phase that they added is awesome! You're this huge, and you smash, and you crush, and you dodge, and you roll over the enemies, and you dodge this, and oh god, and there's... And they even drop magic potions and all over the place, so you don't have to worry about that. But they gave him too much health. It, was, it would be awesome if he literally had about half as much health. Because as is, it's like, yeah, this is awesome, yeah! Man, this is taking a while. God, why is... Okay, there, that's one out of four times I have to do this. And I'm not just saying that because I was running out of time on the last day. In general, it felt like the fight just dragged on too much. So, like I said, it was awesome, and then they, they didn't do it properly. <laughs> uh, okay, I think that's actually all I have to say about the gameplay, as weird as that sounds. I, I know, I know, you're all expecting me to talk about the three-day cycle and blah, blah, blah. But honestly, all I have to say about the three-day cycle thing is the fact that it's awesome. Uh, it allowed them to have a much more personal look. It's much. More, this is the Mass Effect 2 slash Empire Strikes Back of the Zelda series, in my opinion. This is very character-focused, very character... You know, everything's right down in there on the individuals you meet, the NPCs, tons and tons of named NPCs, most of which have stories behind them. In fact, virtually all of them have some kind of story, some kind of personality, and usually there's at least one side quest which involves you working with them and through their problems and helping them to have a better life and whatnot. Very, very character-focused. The actual plot of Majora's is, well, not the greatest in the world, but it's not that bad either. Themes, well, we'll be talking about themes extensively. Holy moly. Um, 
Yeah, uh, let's uh, let's a good time to go ahead and go back to those theories I mentioned because I, th- I wanted to discuss those. I mentioned the link is dead theory. Now, let me make this clear. I do not agree with the link is dead theory. I don't. I'm not even going to argue against it. I just I don't. I'm not with it. Okay. I will argue for it, even though I don't agree with it. In one simple way, having replayed this, it occurred to me there is one way in which the link is dead theory actually fits. See, we know that the link, this link, the Ocarina link, is the same link from Ocarina, and is the same link in Twilight Princess, who teaches all the skills to that link. All three of these are the same person, right? So, the fact that he's already dead as of Twilight Princess, and still going, kind of fits with someone who died and continued to have adventures even after they died. Especially in a land called Termina which actually could be seen as an allegory for the land of the dead in more ways than one. Never mind the fact that there are literally dead spirits all over the place in this game who are still attached to the world or whatever. But the real reason I think it fits, or could fit, is because in Ocarina, the living Link went through a massive, epic-scale adventure of good versus evil, and then he dies... And then goes through another adventure of much more personal discovery and assisting the little people. And, you know, generally uh, the, the tighter focus thing, you know, like I already mentioned. And those two experiences, the living and the dead, giving him the wisdom, courage, etc. Necessary in order to pass on his skills and, and to cling to living so that he can manifest himself as things like a wolf and a, a Stalfos. Because he's not really dead in the strictest sense of the word, he's dead in the sense that he was in the land of the dead and is manifesting himself here in order to blah, 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 blah. So that's how that would work. I still don't agree with it, but I thought I'd argue for it. The other thing I want to mention, and, and I've heard this one mentioned a lot, is the the builders of the stone, you know, the Tower of Babel thing, really, really hated the Triforce goddesses. I mentioned this because one of the biggest forms of... Uh, Evidence for this was the Triforce emblem, which is the only time it appears basically in the entire game, really, uh, on the ass of the statues, you know, in a very obscene manner. That is actually missing in the 3DS version. I I actually looked. I took some effort, and I was like, huh? And they removed the Triforce emblem. There's still a triangle there, just like there was before, but the emblem has been removed. Which I find interesting because I feel like the 3DS version was leaning a diff- in, a, in a couple of directions, graphics-wise and aesthetic-wise, to lend credence to some theories and remove credence from others, and this would be one of those. Uh, I also don't see the phallic thing, personally, but shrug. Now, oh god, I have so many things to talk about. Um, okay, um... <laughs> oh yeah, the one other wild theory I wanted to toss out there was that this is not Link at all. Uh, th- this is a weird one. Th- that this is literally not our Link, or indeed any Link. This is just a spirit who is still roaming uh, this land for whatever reason. Uh, perhaps a reflection of the original Link. Perhaps uh, just a Poe who took his image, you know, whatever. And, uh, and that would be why he is able to metamorph and interact with all these different masks and, and all the spirits and essences of the souls of those he meets throughout the series, blah, 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 blah. Uh, again, don't really have any credits for that, but I said I'd mention it. So, God, I don't even know where to start. I only have two pages of notes only. But, like, this first paragraph is just concrete lore of the entire thing. And then I've got, like, my in-order stuff. And then I've got more concrete lore that I need to go through. So I guess we'll just uh, we'll just go in order here, shall we? 
So first of all, the ancient tribe that is mentioned. Now I have there's tons and tons of theories about the ancient tribe, uh, the ones who made quote unquote the Majora's Mask. Um, one of the biggest theories I hear about them is that they are actually the Twilight, the individuals from Twilight Princess, the interlopers, if you will. Um, this is, uh, and if you're if you're paying attention, this is not the first time I've brought that kind of connection up. Uh, part of that is because it actually makes a lot of sense for the Twilight to be present in several of the Zeldas, given their significance to the overall mythos and the fact that a lot of what they do feels like it's tied into a lot of the things that other ancient races have done. In fact, there's a strong standing theory that the Sheikah are in fact a are the same people as the Twilight. They are just a different faction that decided not to go ahead and, and invade the Sacred Realm and whatnot. Um, this theory is also uh, furthered by the fact that if you look at the Stone Tower and the Tower of Babel and all that fun stuff and the, the, the temple whose name I can't even think of the name of. Did I write it down? I was just doing this. I guess I just have Stone Tower written down. Whatever. The Tower of Babel thing. Um, the architectural style there is very different from the Akana. So it looks like something they didn't build is what I'm trying to say. And based on that... Um, I mean, there's there's debates on that, but based on that, the idea is that maybe that was actually the tower that the Twilight had built to try and reach the Golden Realm, which led to them being cast down, as detailed in Twilight Princess. Possible. Very possible. Um, I don't actually think that's true, though. I'll give my theories when we get there. Uh, next point, the Happy Mask Salesman. Now, he is undeniably and unquestionably... Um, wrong. They go out of their way to present him more or less normally, except for the fact that he's his very movements are wrong. And the fact that he deliberately has no animations between certain actions, like he'll be walking along and then there's like a one-frame turn and then a one-frame turn back. There's, he doesn't turn around. He doesn't do all that. He, he, he's, he's being presented as if he is not used to interacting with people uh, you know, like us. Uh, giving him that obvious otherworldly essence and presence, and that's left deliberately enough, so or, or vaguely enough, excuse me, so that we can determine what we want from that. There's a lot of room for interpretation with the happy mask salesman. Naturally, I will be giving you uh, a couple of theories here. The most common theory is that he is one of the ancient tribe, someone who found out that the Majora mask had been. You know, it has has uh, broken loose or whatever, or been freed or whatever, and went to hunt it down, and therefore was was active in Ocarina, literally looking for that mask. Finds it and is like aha, and then you know, loses it to Skull Kid. Um, there's uh, whether that's true or not is debatable. I I have a fairly similar theory to that. Um, Basically, I think he is one of the ancient tribe, but I think the ancient tribe succeeded. This, this, this is really weird, so I'm, I'm going to save those theories for later. Just remember my thoughts about that. Um, so I mentioned uh, the one of the other things that Majora's Mask does really well, again, I'm just going down the list here, is there's this uh, ever-present feeling of tragedy and dread this inevitable doom that you can't escape it's and it's it's literally visually represented by the fact that if you're in any of the major four areas you can always look over and see the moon just hanging out and you cannot progress through the game without without cheating or uh glitching without first seeing what happens 
at the end of the third day. Because the way the first day is structured, or the first cycle, I should say, is structured, you have to go through that cycle and discover, oh yeah, the moon's going to collapse. So just in case there was any doubt about this giant, horrific-looking moon starting there, no, it's going to collide, it's going to destroy everything. <laughs> um, I, I just want to give quick props to that first cycle, by the way. There's, uh, they did some really good stuff with it, because you basically can't do much on that first cycle. You are limited to Deku form, which is very limited in where you can go, and you can't even leave the town. From a game design perspective, that was actually a really good move. There are some things you can do, some side quests you can advance. No, oh, excuse me. But most of all, what you can do is you can learn the layout of the town. It was a great way to encourage the players to just roam and explore and figure out where everything was, because they'll need that throughout the course of the game, assuming they want 100% or do any of the side quests or whatnot. It was a nice touch, and uh, I found myself just kind of roaming, and at first I was just like, where the hell am I? Because, you know, it's been a while since I played this game. And then, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, I need to go here, and I need to go here. And learning where everything was, it was nice. And by the end of the third day, or rather, you know, but when, when things advanced, I actually had a pretty decent idea where I was going and what I was doing, so credit there um but yeah the doom you can't get away from it the moon is always there you know what's going to happen when it collides and it's not just that though that's the obvious thing the colors are a little bit off the sound design is very gloomy everywhere you go there is some essence of for lack of a better word entropy which is just permeates every pore of this game and I mean, even the idea, even one of the more positive, lighthearted things with Anju and Kefi, or however like you say his name, um, ends on with, with literally like two minutes to spare, and them sitting there accepting the inevitable. You know, embracing what is going to be their death, you know, and it's just like, oh my god. <laughs> Every single aspect of this game lives and breathes that sort of rot. And I have a strong theory about that, which, again, I'll get to basically last. I'm going to give my big theory about Majora's last. I'm going to build up to it and hopefully remember it when I get there. Eh. Um, the uh, there's, a, there's a decent amount of uh, argument that this game could be a lot about faith and courage. Uh, the idea of so many of these people are in the situations they are because they lacked faith in the other individuals around them. And the cur the the only t time things change is when someone with courage... By the way, for the record, no, I don't think Link has the Triforce of Courage at this point in time. I'll talk, discuss that. Well, now, I guess. Because if you think about it, he wouldn't. He didn't get the Triforce of Courage yet. Bear with me. This is the same Link, okay? This is one Link, our Ocarina Link, okay? So he goes through the Child Link stuff in Ocarina gets warped to the future, however it happened, we already discussed that, and during this warp, or immediately following this, is when he gets the the Triforce of Courage. And then he does all his actions in the future, defeats Ganondorf, and is sent back to here, before he got the Triforce. Triforce is now gone. You with me? He has been reverted. Now you might be like, well, hang on, he was sent back. No, only his consciousness was sent back. That's why he comes back in the form of his own body, his the, the shape of a boy, rather than his own adult form coming back with him. If that happened, he probably would have not only all his gear, uh, but the Triforce of Courage. But all of that was left behind. His essence, his thoughts, his soul, whatever you want to call it, uh, went back into the his original child form and started going into this new branch timeline that Zelda created. Thanks, Zelda! 
This is why we can't have nice things. So this Link does not have the Triforce of Courage. But he still has all that courage, that literal experience and, and strength and the determination and the skill to do so. It's why he can wield the shield and the bow despite being a child. He has all that knowledge and all that uh, aptitude that he learned and earned throughout the course of Ocarina. So my point is he has literal courage as opposed to the Triforce of Courage getting forth. But the point is, with all of that courage, he is able to do something that no one else is able to do, actually take things on a risk, actually take faith, and do things that are seemingly impossible in order to rescue everyone. Saving the swamp, and fixing the ocean, and stopping the eternal blizzard, and ending the curse of death. You know, all that fun stuff, right? Now, uh, one other thing about Termina, really quick. Uh, Termina is not the first alternate dimension we see in a Zelda, nor indeed will it be the last. I'm kind of of a torn mind on that one. Uh, this ties into my big theory, believe it or not, but I almost wish originally that it had simply been another continent rather than an alternate dimension. Um, the reasons for it being an alternate dimension are actually very mundane. It's because they wanted to reuse as many art assets as possible from Ocarina. So there's literally the alternate Ingo, and there's the alternate uh, Malon and Talon, and all those characters from Ocarina, who of course have completely different names and personalities here, but the same model. So they can reuse the models and, and get their mileage out of them. Now, I don't want to be uh, derogatory towards Majora's Mask. There's a lot of uh, new models, new art assets in the game, but there's no denying they were reusing quite a bit in order to make this work, so... Now, uh, so, Link, at the beginning, is downcast, looking for Navi. Uh, this has been confirmed. This was theorized for forever. But, yeah, he is looking for Navi. And I just want to say, it is amusing to me, because Zelda wanted him to have a real life. She wanted him to go back to the life she could no longer have, uh, because she had lived through the seven years of hell, and now she had to try and put together the ruined pieces of a world that had been wrecked by Ganondorf. So she gave him his life back, except she didn't. See, this is, despite all her supposed wisdom, I feel like this is one of Zelda's biggest flaws right here, or her biggest missteps. She sends you back, not for one moment thinking that you didn't want to go back. Or even, maybe you didn't even have a choice on the matter. We don't know if Link wanted to go back or not. But he does, He, in my opinion, this is very clearly shown in the intro of this scene, he was not recovered. He did not just go back to life. He went, stopped Ganondorf, as we'll discuss in Twilight Princess, and then went looking for Navi. Because what else is there? After you've been through all that trauma, all the, the stress and strain of having accomplished the incredible, insane things he's done, how do you keep going on with a normal life after that? Well, the obvious answer is you don't. You cling to the only thing that has any semblance of normalcy to you, and you go looking for her. And the funny thing is, we never know if he ever finds Navi or not. That's out for a fun thought for the day. Some people theorize that it doesn't matter if he finds Navi, that he ends up going home to, you know, to Zelda and to the kingdom and, and makes a life for himself there. I don't know. But uh, I also like the fact that at several points in the game, you sh he shows his age, his mental age, that experience and, and, and all that he's been through has brought him. Because he's very respectful, he's very polite, he's very sh straightforward. Uh, he, he does, in many ways, present himself as, as an, a young adult would, and I like that, actually. Uh, probably my favorite example of this is when he does the grave for the Zora, whose name I can't think of, 
whose soul you take in order to become the Smask. Um, you know, when he does the grave and he, he bows respectfully for it. There's several other instances of that, but that's the one that uh, stands out most in my memory. So then Link is knocked off for a disturbingly long period of time after being knocked off the horse. Now, this is probably the only thing in the whole game I look at, and I'm just like, really? Link is knocked out for like 30 freaking seconds after stumbling off of a horse, to the point where Skull Kid can actually kick him over and st and he's still unconscious. Really? <sighs> whatever. It has to happen for the plot to go forward, so fine, whatever. Um, another thing that shows that age is the new uh, animations, especially the jump animations, but they did several uh, things, even in the original N64 version, but especially in the 3DS version, to showcase that. Um, by the way, huge props to this game for having different animations for, like, picking up items or the attacks or looting a chest or whatever, based on which form you're in, the Goron, the, the, the Deku, and the Zora. That was a really nice touch. So then you go down the rabbit hole, more or less literally, and then you meet the Deku Butler's son. This uh, always disturbed me just a little bit because... <laughs> The transformation masks, all three of them, well, four, work by, uh, well, the, uh, we know that uh, the masks can literally contain the soul of an individual. And if you don that mask, you actually gain the ability to be perceived as that person. And it, and it takes someone who really knows that person to understand that you're not them. We see this in, in cases other than the transformation masks as well, actually. Uh, one of my favorite examples is when you wear the Captain's Skull Mask. I forget his name. Uh, for the King of Akana. And he's like, oh my god, it's you! But wait, that's not you. Um, but yeah, there are several examples where people will mistake you for the person that you have the mask of because it's a metaphysical thing, basically. You may not look like that person, not really, but you are literally carrying, you are wearing their soul. And I, I hate, hate to point this out because it's so obvious, but I mean, you are literally wearing a mask of their soul. So it makes sense that you would be perceived as them. Uh, it also says a lot about the power of masks and the overall theme of masks, which is pervasive throughout this entire... Pervasive? Prevalent. Throughout this entire uh, game. The ever-present idea of masks, but I'll talk more about that later. Uh, but I mentioned the Deku butler's son because it's the first time we get that hint of the fact that something's really gone wrong with Skull Kid. I mean, back in Okarana, it is the same Skull Kid as in Okarana and in Twilight Princess, by the way. Um, but we uh, we get this impression right off the bat of how things have gone a little bit awry for him. Playing pranks, mischievous jokes. I mean, I don't like pranks, but at the best, they are ill ill-conceived fun, right? murdering someone in order to take their soul and use it to curse someone else, that's probably over the line. Because it's never stated outright, but it is heavily, heavily implied that Skull Kid is the one who uh, presently, or in the past, killed the Deku Butler's son in order to create the the curse, you know, masking you with the soul of that Deku, giving you the Deku form. It's a nice touch early on in the game because it really emphasizes that this is a damned dark game. Majora's Mask is very dark. I would, I, I know people hate me for saying this, but I think it is tied with Twilight Princess for being a dark game, and I don't mean that as a pun. I mean both games have extremely serious, down, you know, very brutal consequences, a lot of adult fears, and a lot of general darkness throughout the course of the game. 
Both games are also about you trying to fix the world, which was broken even before things went wrong. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. Um, I also want to just give huge, huge props, in addition to the animation, to the gameplay changes that the masks add. The fact that the Deku, the Zora, and the, and the Goron literally play differently, function differently, have different moves, interact with the environment differently, all of that is phenomenal. And it makes this probably one of the most varied Zelda games I've played personally. It, it was a lot of fun uh, replaying this one. So the time mechanic. The first reason behind the time mechanic, and this is stated by the developers, was they really wanted to do the schedule thing. If you don't know what that is, uh, go see Elder Scrolls Oblivion, uh, which was the second major game to really do something like this. In other words, every NPC in the world has a schedule of what they do at what times and what days, and it helps add to the flavor of the world. Uh, Majora's Mask probably, uh, I'd say, is tied in the top three, in my opinion, for worlds that feel like a living, breathing world. That FF9 effect I've talked about so many times. The fact that you can look around and it feels like this is a place where people live, and this is a place where people work and play and die and breathe, and, and it, it just feels more alive because of the interactions, because of the schedule, because of the characters, because of the way they interact with each other. You know, all that fun stuff really helps flesh that out. So the time... You know, rewinding mechanic enables you to have that schedule so you can see all the different events that are happening because it's it's almost almost impossible to do everything in one cycle it is actually possible to do uh, a fairly large amount of everything in one cycle I believe with glitches with speedrunning strats you can actually do 100% of the run in a single cycle I'm not 100% sure that I meant to look that up before this and I failed um, because the other thing I saw was of a uh, a any percent one cycle run which skipped a few things and then there was a, another run which uh did everything in four cycles total 100 percent in four cycles so eh. anyways so that's actually awesome the other reason though is it's an ever-present reminder in a, a somewhat more subtle way of that entropy aspect I already talked about. Yes, you have the moon. Yes, you have the atmosphere. But there's also a literal ticking clock so that you, the player, actually know that things are ticking out. You know what's going to happen at the end of that third day. You know that if you don't hurry, you're going to run out of time. There are actually several times where I made a mistake and I was basically an hour late for an event and I had to go back to the first day in order to start over and go through the cycle again to get back to the point where I was in order to accomplish it and blah, blah, blah. Um, and that was... Uh, yeah, that was kind of irritating, um, but, you know, it, it again gets that feeling of uh, ever-present tension throughout the course of the game. Uh, I also kind of got into the habit of doing the inverted Song of Time every single time I reset things, except for when I did the, uh, uh, the a couple of side quests where you actually need time to be flowing normally, but anyways. So, uh, one quick note here. I... I <laughs> I'm going to try and hit these in order. I keep, I keep wanting to skip ahead of my notes. I'm still on the first page here. I noticed that there's kind of a lack of governing bodies in this. Now, I know what you're going to say. Well, what are you talking about? I mean, there's the mayor, and there's the King Deku, and there's, uh, well, there's the King of Akana, and that's kind of it. But that's kind of my point. In most other Zeldas, there's usually strong governing bodies that feel like kingdoms or nations or something. 
you know, the Gerudo and the, the Gorons and the Zora and the Hyrule Kingdom of Ocarina, even though they are literally small, are always presented as if they are, you know, kingdoms, basically. Uh, this is true for many other Zeldas. I'm not going to get into each example here because it would take a while. But the point is, in this one, they had a very different feel for it. Each one felt more like a city-state to me. They might be like, well, what's the difference? Well, first of all, the difference is it's more focused on the individuals, much uh, smaller, tighter focus. But second of all, it is also indicative of that entropy theme I already mentioned. Because we have the ruins of what used to be kingdoms here. There's the implications that the main center town used to be much more sprawling and better designed and, and better flourishing than it is now. The kingdom of Akana, of course... Well, that's obvious. I mean, that place has been ruined completely by years of bloodshed. The the swamps down in the south, even before the poison came in, were mostly lost, and only a small section of it is claimed by the Deku. There is no governing body in the west, in the oceans, except for the pirates, who have their one fortress, and yet despite having this massive sprawling fortress of doom that is very impressive, they lack any offensive power, so they're basically holed up in there walling themselves off and uh, trying to stave off the inevitable. And of course in the north there's the Gorons who lack any strong governmental body whatsoever to the point where they are completely incapable of dealing with a crying baby. I mean, I know that that's probably me reading too much into it, but seriously, that is how dependent they have become on whoever their ha current leader happens to be. Uh, Darmia, I want to say was his name? Or the Elder, depending on how you think about that. And the Elder was the only Goron, oh, Elder and Darmia, excuse me, were the only Gorons who actually were trying to do anything about the Eternal Winter. Everyone else was just kind of living with it. Yeah. Um, do I even need to make my point there? The idea point here is it's not just that there's a lack of governing bodies. It's the fact that there's a lack of leadership in this world. There's no strong leaders. There's Well, they're too, you get my point. There's no strong leadership. I think that is the better way to put that. And again, it gets back to that idea of maybe Termina was on its way out. Hey, Porokibora, or whoever it is, has a similar comment about how this the swamp is fated to die and so is everything else, is basically how he phrases it. And, yeah. Um, so, that's, so then there's... And there's Tingle. This is the first game with Tingle. This is probably the game where I hate Tingle the least. He only asks for a few rupees for his maps, and rupees flow like water in this game. I should talk about the bank thing. Um, he's just... I'm not going to say he's creepy, because I don't think he is. I think this is more a cultural thing. You know, if someone was like that here in the States, yeah, they'd be a creepy bastard. But this is not in the States. This is a Japanese game. And uh, I also feel like it's kind of the Michael Jackson thing. Hear me out. I'm one of those people who don't think that Michael Jackson was a pervert, you know, in, in the sense that he was accused of. I don't. I think he was literally... I mean, we know he had some actual uh, issues, uh, thanks, to, thanks to the reports that have been released after his death, but I think he was more the man trying to embrace the child thing taken to a bit of an extreme. And I feel like that's one of the reasons why most people didn't acclimate to that, because that is not normal. It is unusual. And unusual is a very ripe and prime target for mockery or accusation or whatever. I mean, I'm sure at least several of my audience understands what it's like to be unusual, right? So I mention that because I think Tingle is literally just take, trying to embrace the childhood of, oh, yes, I'm totally a fairy, this fantasy taken to an extreme, like I said. Uh, we actually meet his father in this game, as it happens. Um... 
but he is just another example of a character who is wearing a mask. We'll go ahead and talk about that here. See, he is obviously not a fairy, and yet he clings to that ideal. Uh, there's the romantic couple in Clockwork Town uh, who have the, uh, in the, the Mideast section, have a... Uh, have a game you can do where you throw bomb shoes and then bombs and then arrows, right? And yet the whole time they're like, oh, we're so in love. We're so in love. We're so happy and we're so in love. It comes across as fake even before you finish the third game and they have that line, are we really this happy? You know, as they actually start to question whether or not they actually are what they say they are. Uh, again, a mask. Then there's the postman whose mask is his schedule. He has to adhere to the schedule. He must do whatever the schedule says. He is bound to do it, and, and everything must adhere to the schedule to the point where if you don't do his side quest, he will sit there and die because it's not on his schedule to leave. Or how about the swordsman who's like, oh, I am brave and strong. I will cleave the moon in twain and nothing will be... We will have nothing for fear, and yet if you find him on the night of the third day after the, the clock starts ticking down, he is cowering, whimpering about how he does not wish to die. And then there's the Gorman brothers. Uh, there's actually two theories about the Gorman brothers. Uh, first theory is that they actually are Garrow. They are ex-Garrow. They are some of the only Garrow who fled that terrible, horrible, bloodthirsty war and decided to make a different living for themselves, you know, in basically robbing people and, and running the races. Uh, whether that's true or not is debatable. That's the theory I adhere to. The other theory is, of course, they just stole some Garrow masks. But either way, they're either wearing the mask of normal people, uh, hiding their bloodstained past, and the fact that they're still crooks, or they're wearing the guise of normal people, hiding the, the fact that they're still crooks. Now, I'm not going to go through every example in the game, but virtually every major NPC who at least has some quest attached to them in this entire game is wearing a mask. Not literally, although in some cases literally, but figuratively. They are hiding whoever they really are. This is, again, one of the major themes of Majora's Mask, ironically enough, the fact that we as people hide ourselves. And in some cases, we don't even know what's underneath those masks. And it's one of the other uh, things this game t toys with is the idea that if you wear a mask for too long, you actually become that mask and you no longer actually have a true self. This is the real you and there's nothing left underneath. And I find it fascinating, uh, especially since it fits with my overall theory. I think I'm just going to say that and leave it at that. Um, now, uh, the bank thing. I just want to talk about the bank thing really quick. You guys know that economics is one of my things. Uh, I have weird interests. Economics, ships, <laughs> fiction. Anyways, um, I want you to picture it this way, okay? Let's say here's the bank, okay? This is great. And they have 5,000 rupees in the bank. Just bear with me, okay? So you go through... And you get all these rupees and you deposit 200 rupees in the bank. So now they have 5,200 rupees in the bank. Yay! Then you re then they stamp you. And I love this, by the way, because this is brilliant. They give you like a little tattoo. And I just picture it literally saying, you know, name and current balance. And they just adjust the tattoo each time. So he recognizes, ah, yes, that's the tattoo. And this is your account balance, right? That's how I've always pictured it. So you rewind time. Now the bank has 5,000 rupees because we're back at the beginning. You go and say, yes, I have 200 rupees, please. So you withdraw. Now the bank has 4,800 rupees. 
and you see where this is going. It could reach a point where if you wanted to, like, you, you basically ruin this bank by making them think you have this account of 5,000 whatever rupees, you know, in order to get the heart piece, when in fact none of that money was ever deposited into the bank. <laughs> and you could kind of economically ruin that bank if you actually pushed yourself to do so. I just find that idea fascinating, because... Because, I mean, you did deposit the money, it's just you didn't deposit it into that bank, if you follow me. Uh, anyways, <clears throat> uh, this is, uh, so I've got another note here. This is one of the least linear Zelda games uh, ever, basically. I have not played Link Between Worlds, but uh, I would actually say this is probably the least linear Zelda game I've ever played personally. You basically should do the tumbles in the four order. Oh, by the way, you ever notice that? The number four is everywhere in this game, uh, which is your classic four elemental, four sides, corners of the earth, you know, blah, 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 blah. I forget if that's Taoism or uh, Dadism or Buddhism, but uh, it's something. Anyways, if you literally do the, the dungeons in order, it's down, up, left, right, which forms a four. Anyways, you do basically have to do the dungeons in order, but other than that, you can do whatever basically whenever. You can even go redo the dungeons, which I had to do at least a few times uh, to do the frog side quest and to do a, and to open up a couple other mini-quests, because you have to make it spring in the north to do several things. So I had to beat Garo, or Goat, excuse me, I had to beat Goat like five times. Probably should have planned that a little better, but whatever. So uh, I like that non-literality. Uh, that, that non it's probably a game that if I knew it better, you know, if I really knew it inside out, I would love speedrunning this game. Because anybody who's watched me do my speedruns, especially uh, my FF6 runs, knows that routing is a huge deal when it comes to speedrunning, in several games at least. And I love routing. I love trying to figure out the gains and the losses and the net balance of, of an increased time and efficiency and trying to push the limits of what I can accomplish, you know. I love routing a speedrun, and I feel like Majora's Mask has just got to be a treat. To, to route, because there's so much you can do in basically any order, you know. Um, so, uh, ah, yes, there's that thing. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Uh, I talked about that already. So let's uh, let's talk about the... Well, eh, um, <laughs> There's so many things I keep seeing in my notes, like, well, I want to talk about that later. Let's talk about the Skull Kid. Uh, this is just a nice, tiny little point. If you're watching through the observatory on the first day, Skull Kid's like, da 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 and then you see the moon tier. I saw that like eight freaking times, by the way, doing that freaking moon tier thing until I finally was done with that quest. Oh my god. <sighs> Anyways, if you do it on the first day, he's like, da 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 If you do it on the second day, he's like, <laughs> If you do it on the third day, he looks just distorted. He's just like, <laughs> And he doesn't even animate, he's just, <laughs> It's uh, it's interesting to to sh literally have that visual represented representation of how much he is degenerating under Major under the Majora's mask. Uh, nice touch. Um, speaking of nice touches, the postman, ha if you get into his his office, actually has the signs with the schedules and the routes uh, all up there, so you can exactly see where the postman's going and whatnot uh, for for use in later quests, of course. But mostly just because it's again a nice touch. It adds to that lived in feel. Speaking of nice touches. Um, the um there's the Majora's emblem 
basically everywhere in this game. It comes off of the bosses. It's indicative to go refight the bosses. Uh, there's several aspects of it in the dungeon design and whatnot. I have my own thoughts about that. Basically, if I were to summarize them in brief, I think that Majora is not a recent inclusion into this world. I think Majora has been around for quite some time in this world. Uh, but again, I'm, saved, I'm just adding bits and pieces to my final theory, which I'm still building up to. Um... Awians. <laughs> I have a note on my thing that just says Awians. Let's talk about the... Uh, I mean, I'm not saying they're Awians, but... Uh, let's talk about the aliens really quick. So I've heard several people... I actually talked to this about a fr uh, to a friend, too, while we were having lunch uh, in between this. I was like, what do you think about aliens in Zelda? Now, he hasn't actually played Majora's, so that's how I phrased the question. His response was, what? Aliens in Majora? Aliens in Zelda? What the hell? And then we we got into a fairly lengthy discussion about the pros and cons of basically genre shifting like that. Uh, see Indiana Jones and the mythical, magical aspects that, that tend to be pervasive throughout the first three films and the sci-fi aspects in the fourth film uh, for a good example of this idea. Done well, poorly, whatever. It depends on your perspective. Now, for me, if they were aliens, that wouldn't bother me too much because it adds to the otherworldly nature of Termina. But I don't think they're aliens. Hear me out. We have group, groups of beings who show up pretty regularly, who steal cows, so no real damage done, um, and just kind of generally mess with people, and who float around in big, scary stuff. And I, I think they're Poe's. I think they're Poe's. It just makes way too much sense for me for them to actually be Poe's playing a prank on us or, or just generally being, you know, whatever is wrong with them then it makes sense for the to, to, to aliens to have just come down and start, you know, abducting uh, cows and a person uh, in a Zelda game. That's just my take on it. Uh, I will also point out that they never really say, them, say that they're aliens. They also, uh, they present them in a way that it's very clear that they're supposed to be aliens. You know, the, the teleportation beam, the fact that they're, or the, excuse me, the tractor beam, the fact that they're stealing cows, uh, the shiny light, very indicative of the classic, you know, oh my god, it's a UFO, you know. Um... I still stand by my best theory that their pose, not just for the reasons I just listed, but also because I feel it like it fits a little bit better thematically. First of all, Termina has a lot of the dead in it, and a lot of the dead lingering in it because of the major overarching theory I keep building up to. It also has uh, that overall feeling of inevitability, which permeates every aspect of Termina. And that's basically what these are, aren't they? Every year, these will show up and they will take your stuff. The end. And if not for the intervention of Link, they would have done the same damn thing again. So, which also fits the theory of Link being the thing that breaks the cycles, haha, of Termina. Um, you'll notice I haven't talked about the moon yet, or the temples. Uh, kind of building up to that. The thing I find interesting right at the end just a small point, is that Majora gives you a mask only after you have shed all of yours. Yes, I did get the Fierce Deity or the Oni mask in this playthrough. Like I said, 100%. Um, I, uh, I, I just find it wonderfully fascinating that a point in time at which Link has bared who he really is 
Majora basically, the impression I always got is that Majora can't stand to look at the real person that Link is, to look at someone who is a real person, to, to, to the very concept of not wearing a mask is so alien to this thing that it has to give you this mask. Now, of course, that only happens if you 100% it. But the fact that that final fight, you completely and utterly destroy Majora. I mean, just complete curb stomp. I, I forgot how incredibly easy that fight is with the Fierce Deity Mask. Um, I think further emphasizes the fact that even knowing, even knowing that you were going to destroy it, you, you were going to play the bad guy, Majora was still willing to go through with that just because it, it, was, so in, it was so alien to the creature or whatever, to the ear essence or spirit or whatever, that someone would not be wearing a mask, that it, it couldn't take it. It's like, here, here, just, just take it, God. All right, I think I've done enough buildup. Let me just check my notes really quick. All right, so we're going to talk about a few things here. First of all, a lot of sympathy is gendered for uh, the Skull Kid, the Skull Kid is a, in this game is actually a very good example of the A to Z theory of villainy. Uh, I know I haven't talked about that a lot in my show. Uh, most of that's been on streams, and I know not everyone catches my streams. So, in brief, some people wonder how someone who starts at A, you know, a good person, can turn into Z, a villain. The reason why is you don't go from A to Z. You go from A to B. You make a little choice, a little decision, and you adapt to it. We, as living beings, are very adaptable. That's, that's actually basically what defines us as living, sentient, sapient beings, is our adaptability. So we adapt. Now that we're at B, our worldview has changed slightly. Okay, we're at B. All right. Well, then you have to make another change. You have to make another decision. So you make another step to C, and then to D, and then to E, and then F. You see how this goes. So the gradual descent... It, it, it's, it's, it's how... Uh, sorry, I thought I heard something. It's how... Um, it's how Anakin should have gone. I'll just put it that way. Anakin should have gone from A to Z. Uh, and we see a lot more of that in the Clone Wars show than we actually see in Episode 3. It's probably one of my biggest complaints about Episode 3 is that we don't see that progression that's already happened. Because by Episode 3, he's actually already at, like, W in the path. But we don't see that. That all happened in the show. Um, Skull Kid starts off, haha, pranks, yay, whatever. And then he he's cast out of Termina into Hyrule, and so he just kind of keeps doing his thing there, but that bitterness and resentment of having been f thrown out by his friends eats at him, lingers at him, until he finally manages to play a prank on the Happy Mask Salesman, steals a mask, uh, debatable if he stole Majora at random, or if Majora called to him, or if he wanted Majora because he could sense the soul-slash-power in it. We do know Skull Kid is basically a, ha either a spiritual being or a form of a Deku. I, I lean towards the firm, former, especially since he's still around in Twilight Princess's era, but moving on. Um, so, you know, he, he takes the mask and he just starts taking a step towards B, and he starts playing a prank, and then a worse prank, and then a worse prank. We hear a fairly large amount of the different pranks he's been doing throughout the game. He, you know, knocking over uh, Kume, or whatever her name is, in the woods, that's pretty bad, but not that bad. Um, you know, uh... Kidnapping, you know, kidnapping the princess, or sealing off the area, or poisoning the swamp, or setting up Bigoron in 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 defense of uh, in defense of the Snowfrost, you know, or Snowhead, excuse me. 
if you look at it in a certain order, the pranks he pulls throughout the course of the game are all escalating all the way up to the biggest prank, which is, I'm going to bring the moon down on everyone's heads. Now, I mention this because, again, Skull Kid is portrayed as fairly sympathetic. He didn't really know what was going on, and it's made clear that it's the mask that was basically pushing him from A to B to Z. I postulate that the mask is the same way. Hear me out. The actions of the mask, the actions of Majora, seem not evil to me. That's a wrong word. Um, they don't feel malicious. There's no malevolence. There's no ill intent. It's instead extremely warped, twisted. I feel like Majora is a good example of blue and orange morality. Someone who has become so wrong over the course of whatever happened to them that we have the situation that we have where Majora is willing to do all these terrible, warped, twisted things basically as part of a game. And there's that final line which I cannot help but ignore, I can't help but, but take into account in, in the moon where Majora tells you, you play the bad guy. We'll play good guys and bad guys, you be the bad guy. Don't forget, it's okay to run. I get the really strong impression that Majora viewed itself as the good guy and everything else as the bad guys, and was just trying to play good guys and bad guys with that sort of childlike uh, philosophy, which, again, I'll get to in a moment. Um, and so it wasn't actually trying to kill everyone with the moon colliding with it, but was trying to scare them all into running away, which obviously is not how that worked out. Um, it also, a lot of the things Majora does give me that uh, lack of perspective concept. What usually people refer to as childlike uh, naivete or innocence. In other words, the lack of understanding of what consequences are. The inability to understand that your actions can completely destroy someone's life. That's the kind of thing that most children just don't understand. They don't have the experience for it. They don't, um, they don't get what they're doing. So Majora doing all these things to ruin all these lives, it probably never even occurs to it that it is ruining people's lives. And, and even if it did, it would not have a concept of what ruining life means because it hasn't experienced that itself. Now, <laughs> all of that leads me to the big theory, which is that Majora is one of the ancients. The only line we ever have about Majora and its origin is that it was a mask to help with hexing for the ancient tribe, and that's it. That is all. That is also given to us by the Happy Mask Salesman, who I've already postulated is an ancient tribesman. This also ties into the Stone Tower, the original purpose in most of the constructions here, and the nature of the world as a whole. Like I said, this is my big theory. You ready for this? I think that once upon a time there was the ancient tribe, whether they're the Twilight or something else doesn't matter. For my purposes, I'm just going to refer to them as the ancient tribe, because this doesn't quite fit with the interlopers, okay? The ancient tribe ruled the entirety of the land pretty well. They had high technology, they had strong magic, they had the beginnings of magic technology. They were pretty advanced for all intents and purposes. And by Zelda's style, are probably one of the most advanced organizations throughout the entirety of the franchise. This organization built these four institutes in order to stop a slow, inevitable descent of entropy that was happening throughout the course of the land. Now. This is where the theory kind of branches. Either they are the cause of this, 
and therefore built these things to help stop it, or they built these things and then the, and and the cause was regardless of them. It was just something that was happening in the world in general. But one way or the other, I very strongly believe that Termina was always sliding into ruin, that it was a constant example of entropy, and everything was constantly going bad one way or the other, whether they caused it through their own hubris, their own machinations, their own portals to other worlds. Ah, I forgot. I haven't talked about that yet. Let's back up a bit. So we've got the Swamp Temple, right? To put it simply, my theory is that the curse that these various essences that were put into the masks for, that curse is not actually cursing the land. It's cursing the temple. Now you might be like, well, what's the difference? The point is, I feel like the temple's true purpose, all of them, all four of them, to some extent or another, I should say, all three of them, really, is to stabilize the local terrain. That the Swamp Temple literally acted as a way of keeping the water clean and keeping the jungle functional. That the Water Temple, whose name I can't remember, the Great Bay or whatever, um, was purifying the water that was otherwise rancid and terrible and, and incapable of, of sustaining life. That in the north, it was always a constant blizzard, normally. And so they created the Snowhead Temple specifically to stabilize the weather and to reduce that, that effect so there would actually be spring and, and life that could grow in that area. And that these things were created by the ancient tribe specifically to do these purposes. You with me so far? Now, each of these tribes, or excuse me, each of these temples has a creature that is guarding it, which has been basically uh, controlled by Majora and influenced by Majora. And we also see the 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 kids in the in in the moon wearing the mask of each of these, right? In case you're not getting where I'm going with this, we know that souls can be put into masks. We know that you can wear a mask to literally physically change your shape. I am saying that the four bosses are actually ancient tribesmen that have been controlled and manipulated and used in order to curse the, func the functionality of the three temples to not work properly. You with me so far? You may have closed the window because, I mean, oh my god, this is a crazy theory. This makes so much sense to my mind. Let me, let me keep going. Because it all ties together with the fourth temple. You notice I keep referencing these three over and over and over. And this really bothered me on this playthrough because I, I had analysis mode on full. And the first three temples, they fit together like a glove. There's several different theories, all of which cohese with the first three temples. Great and completely don't work with the fourth temple. The fourth temple, the more I looked at it, the more I was like, this is just... This is different. This is this is being done on purpose. I, I know these people. They love their symbolism. The people who make the Zoldians love to put symbolism and, and themes into little things like, like architecture and music design and sound design. So I'm looking at it like, what is the point here? The fourth temple, well, they've got that massive Tower of Babel thing reaching up to the heavens. And then they've got the actual temple at the top, which quite literally reaches into another dimension where you fight the Twin Mold. You already see where I'm going with this, don't you? I think the ancient tribe reached the height of their hubris after having constructed the other three temples, built this massive stone tower, built all the way up to the heavens, built this, the, 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 the dimensional gateway itself of the stone tower, specifically as a place to access other dimensions. That was how they wished to expand, to, to explore, to reach up to the heavens. Not semi-literally, but not actually literally. 
Whether they ended up in the moon or not is debatable, although that would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? Because, well, my the way my theory goes is, again, either they started the destabilization of the world, or it was already happening, and... Well, let's just say that opening a, a, a place that has basically dimensional leakage, for lack of a better word, probably isn't going to be overall good for the surrounding terrain, now is it? In other words, the fourth temple was always designed to reach into other dimensions, and was pro the gate, for all intents and purposes, was basically open. And I think that's what was causing the uh, more severe aspects of the undead curse that was currently present over the land, although that is debatable. It is entirely possible the fourth temple has nothing to do with why the land was screwed up, it is entirely possible that the Akana and the Garo are completely responsible for why the land was screwed up. I mean, I'm sorry, but in most fantasy settings, you kill a lot of people in a short, in a small area. That area is not going to be doing very well. I use that myself in Primus. So, you know, these two nations, which have been at war for years and years and years and years, yeah, that is could be entirely the source and cause of the undeath curse, the the the, the palo, pa, pale, Paul. The bad thing that... <laughs> words! The bad thing that exists over the entirety of the Akana region. Now, you're like, well, okay, you're, you're off your rocker, Arsh. And that's entirely valid. But I want to toss out a few other things really quick. First of all, like I said, this explains perfectly the moon. That the ancient tribe literally made it up to the moon. And there they are. Well, why are there only four of them? Or, if you want to think of it, why are there only five of them? Because there's the Happy Mask Salesman. Uh, or no, I guess there would be... Hang on. One, two, three, four... Uh, excuse me, there's six. Six of them. Because there's the Happy Mask Salesman, the four bosses, and Majora, right? Six, uh, six total ha uh, ancient tribe. Now, the first and most obvious answer is there's more we're just not seeing. It's pretty obvious that the inside of the moon is freaking metaphoric to hell and back. So there could be tons of those people around there. And these are literally just the kids. Now, I like this theory best because the idea here is that this particular spot is basically a nursery for the young of the ancient tribe, who are still going to this day and happen to live in whatever dimension they found after they built the tower and left Termina behind. And Majora would be one of those kids. And just like Skull Kid didn't really have the the perspective, the mentality necessary, the growth, maturity necessary to understand what it was doing, and had the extremely powerful soul necessary to do horrible things, which resulted in that ma his mask being separated from him. And you see how this can kind of line up, right? And thus there are probably other ancient tribe up there, or elsewhere, that are taking care of the situation, or at least trying to, like, for example, the happy mask salesman, who does not actually come across as a child in his mannerisms. I was paying very close attention to this because of this theory as I was replaying this. His, he does act like an adult, an alien, but an adult. So he could clearly be the, he could be the, be the only adult left, or he could just be one of the adults who actually gives enough of a damn to try and do something to clean up the mess of one of their kids in one of the worlds they've left behind. It is also possible this could be a little more metaphysical than what I am implying. They could literally be on a new plane of existence, which I'm not even going to go into, but it is a valid theory. The, uh, the other way, though, the other way that I like this theory is because it shows that Majora itself is ultimately a victim of the strongest theme of the entire game. Not masks. Not the, not the, not the entropy thing. 
misunderstandings. Everywhere in this game, people misunderstanding other people. How many truly evil characters are there in Majora's Mask? Assume for a moment we're removing Majora itself from the equation. So how many truly evil things other than Majora are there in Majora's Mask? And I would postulate Majora isn't evil either, for the reasons I've already gifted. It's just completely deranged. Now, you could argue that there are there is evil in this game. I would argue that there isn't, at least not amongst the named, not amongst the major characters. Every single time there is some kind of dispute or argument or even violence, it's because of disagreements. It's because of humanity, if I could put it in such terms. One of the natures of real life is that you could have a good person and a good person, bear with me, and they disagree on something and they fight. Sometimes this can lead to wars or, or general conflicts or skirmishes or God knows what else. There's not always bad guys and good guys. It is a childlike perspective to have bad guys and good guys. I'm not saying that as an insult, by the way. There's nothing wrong with that perspective. But it is a lack of understanding of how real life works that perceives that there are always good guys and there's always bad guys. Which goes back to what Majora says, isn't it? You play the bad guy, I'll play the good guy. But there are no bad guys or good guys in Majora. Not really. There's just people. I mean, Link is a good guy, but you get my point. There's just people. Everywhere. I, 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 uh, where's, I took a few notes on this. Hang on. The, um... Hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> uh, where did I write all that? Ah, here we go. The, okay, so, like, the guards and the council members is a great example of this. The guards care about the people here. The council members care about the people here. And both of them are trying to do what they feel is best, and they're, in, they're constantly arguing back and forth as the mayor's just like, oh, God, please. You know, good example of that. Um, the, uh, the Akana and the Garo are also a good example of that, as weird as that sounds, just taken to a further extreme. These are two groups who have been arguing so long that we're not even sure what the original argument point is, really. We don't know what, that, what started that war. We just know that at this point in time, the Garo... And the, and the Akana have been fighting for so long, they're both dead. And they're both just still going after each other for years and years after the war probably actually ended. And, yeah. I, I could name a dozen other examples, but really, look at just about every NPC interaction. It's all about how there's just decent people who disagree with each other. It's omnipresent, if I could be so bold. And, uh... It's indicative, I think. And this ties in again to the overall theme because it, the ancient tribe is not necessarily evil. They just disagreed. You see? The, uh, the Majora is not necessarily evil. You know, the children are not necessarily evil. I guess, I guess that's it. I feel like I've, I've ended on a weird note. But that is kind of everything I've got. Um... Let me know what you think, as ever, in the comments. Tell me about how horrible I am. It's okay, I understand. Uh, it's been fun going through this one. Next week, uh, I'm not going to promise next week is Wind Waker, because Wind Waker is a long game, and it's Wednesday. So, but intent, the intention here is next week, Wind Waker. Hopefully, I will see you guys there.